As we enter into the fourth week, I am beginning to feel like a bit of a broken record. A very broken, broken record. That's a little bit of a joke, see? Broken because of the fact that we are a fractured, broken people, but also broken because God keeps telling Israel to repent, and while Israel keeps, to use the words of Paul, keeps writing its own salvation with a lot of fear and trembling. A lot of trembling. The book of Hosea is about to have this major shift. As we finish up the third chapter last week, the explicit narrative of Homer, remember my celebrity name for Hosea and Gomer, has come to a close, and now we move into a collection of sermons and prophecies from our homie Hosea. It's hard to know if these sermons are before or after his marriage, but the, that really doesn't actually matter. What matters is the narrative of God is preached through Hosea, which is one both of a judgment, accountability, and ultimately, redemption. A narrative of awakening to the life that they are living and a shift into what God desires of them. The valley of the dry bones being stirred awake, the waking of the dead, a redemption of resurrection. The Lord does come out swinging in chapter 4 through Hosea. He, uh, he begins, once again, stating that he is not their God because they are not acting like he is their God. In this way, God says there is no faithful love or loyalty because there is no knowledge of God. I really kind of like this. That once again, I know it's been something that we've been hitting on throughout the study so far. That when we don't act like we are God's, it's because God says we are not his because we're not acting like we are knowing of God. I like how God puts it in saying, well, you don't have this faithful love or loyalty because you're not showing that you know of me. You don't know me. The knowledge of God, once again, is being linked to intimacy. This knowing, it's life-changing. This knowing is just not knowing the laws of God, but it's actually living out the laws of God. I'm going to say that again. This knowing God is just not knowing the laws of God, but it's actually living out the laws of God. That's a very important distinction because it's still something I think we struggle with today. We have a lot of head knowledge. We can recite scripture to the chapter and verse. But are we living as God has called us to do? Are we living with the knowledge of God? Because this, this is a tale as old as time. Those who would know the laws of God, but not actually live like they know the laws of God. How would that ever happen? Surely that doesn't happen anymore today. Or it happens all the time. And God begins to extol Israel in how he has seen their failures. Swearing, lying, murdering, stealing, and adultery is how the Lord begins. It's almost like, like God at some point put laws against us, like laws that were written down on stone tablets and were eventually smashed when the person who brought them down from the mountain, brought this law down, saw that the people of Israel had built another idol in the short time that he was up on the mountain. Also, I really wanted to note here that swearing isn't the foul mouth language here. What it is, is the swearing falsely, or you know, when the Lord says, do not take my name in vain, the Lord isn't actually forbidding you from saying, oh God, but rather he, what it is about is about those who take on God's name, but then do not live out God's call. They swear an oath to God. But then they don't act as they have sworn an oath. This is taking the Lord's name in vain. When you swear by God that you are going to do something, like follow after him, 
knowing his laws and living those laws out, but then you actually don't do it. That is what the Lord says when he says, do not take my name in vain, or swearing as we would know it. It's not about being a foul-mouthed sailor, but rather what it is about is that we need to take a how we plead allegiance with the words that we use and do those align up with the actions that we do. When we swear to God, are we swearing towards actions that uh, are our actions lying, aligning with what we are saying when we make those promises? The Lord intended not taking it, uh, his name in vain based off how we lived our lives. If we're going to claim God, we need to act like we know God. And once again, the Lord asks if we're going to uh, if we are going to swear to be his wife. We must live our lives like he is our husband. Okay, back to this listing of sins. Lying, I mean swearing, lying, stealing, and adultery. These are all point to the Ten Commandments in Exodus that the Lord is saying that they have forgotten. They have forgotten the laws that the Lord had put into their society for it to be built upon. The kingdom of Israel is fractured, broken in two, much like these stone tablets have forgotten their God and built false idols. The next line is also very important. When they say bloody crime <clears throat> by bloody crime, it's a better reference as blood followed by blood or blood touching blood. In the Hebrew translation, it's better translated as blood touching blood. Now, that really not mean anything to us. Like when we hear that, we're like, okay, blood touching blood, that means nothing to me. Uh, just kind of disgusting. Uh, but actually, in the current context of what is, I should say, in the context of when Israel hears it, that is actually very important to hear. A little bit of a history lesson. So if we go right after this creation story, what is the first crime of humanity? Cain and Abel, brothers giving worship to God. Cain gets jealous of Abel and the blessing that he receives from God. And well, Cain grabs a rock and smashes Abel's head. Pleasant, I know. Brothers fight. And what does the Lord say? When he uh, calls out, he said that his blood cries out from the ground. See, the Lord has something about blood and the spilling of blood. And when this first happens, the Lord is outraged because that is not how he intended humanity to live. We all know of dietary rules that the Lord puts through and forward in Exodus and Leviticus. Well, part of that is related to not eating animals with certain blood. The sacrifice culture of atonement that we start having coming out of temple worship, all related to blood. So when Hosea says blood following blood, they know that God is not happy in the fact he is furious when Cain killed Abel. God is not pleased that Israel has actually continued to spill blood, even after he set up a violent sacrifice culture to help curb that from happening. But the Lord doesn't even stop there. The Lord continues on and says the earth is getting sick. And all who live on it are growing weak. All who live, as it continues, it does not just mean who as in humanity, but rather everything, every living creature, all the wild animals, the birds of the sky, the fish of the sea, it is all dying. All the lives on this earth are beginning to die because there seems to be this unraveling of our Genesis creation story. See, we are working backwards here, and there is destruction that is leading us back towards the beginning. Think about it this way. 
we start off in this this poetic waxing with God talking about the Exodus story in the Ten Commandments through his swearing, murdering, lying there. He's setting up saying, okay, starting at Exodus, you followed these laws and then you disrupted them. You don't follow them anymore. And then you take that next step back. It's to Cain and Abel, the first crime that God, uh, humanity commits against one another. And he says, okay, well, you're still doing that too. And then you take another step back and the Lord leads us through the creation story and how we are deconstructing or destroying the created order of things. We're failing back towards the garden. Israel is failing back towards the garden. And this has this double meaning. It shows how far Israel has moved away from the garden. Their practices have left them wandering in the desert, leading to their own splitting and destruction of their nation, the constant political upheaval, the wandering of worship towards other gods, and now destruction of natural resources. The Lord says all of this disobedience has has come about and no one has the right to complain another interesting hebrew here hebrew word for the when we're talking about complaining here the word is actually closer to a legal complaint than it is about a personal complaint what the lord is saying is that you do not get to hold me legally accountable because the actions of what you have done the actions have driven you further and further away from me your actions and your choices, they have repercussions. Look around. See how the natural order of things are beginning to break at the seams? See how your nation is splitting? See how far you've wandered away? The Lord says, you do not get to complain against me. You do not get the right to protest me. And I, and I say this is also a little bit poetic because unlike the people hearing Hosea's message at the time, we know Christ. The person who eventually kind of brings us back into the garden. See, as God is here saying, look at all this destruction, this dismantling, this failing back to the garden. God then sends Christ so that we, well, out of all of this, a garden can grow. We have already heard throughout Hosea, God has not given up on Israel. And even though here, his harshness begins to cut deep, it cuts to the heart, back to the garden. And from there, God can heal. Because that's the way it works, right? Sometimes with God, he cuts us down to the heart because in reality, that's where healing needed to begin in the first place. Because we have wandered so far that God needs to cut us back to the beginning. Because that is where resurrection can begin. Out of chaos, God brought order. Out of destruction, God brought creation in the midst of the stormy scenes in front of Israel, in front of the American church, in front of me, Christ has calmed them and brought peace. And we have to remember that in the midst of God's judgment, there is healing. We should not separate those, uh, those things, judgment and healing, as we often do in the church. God is bringing judgment in order to bring about healing. He's bringing up the rift in between Israel and himself so that he can reconcile them back towards him. He is bringing up the space between so they can realize how far from the garden they have wandered. But sometimes we in the church like to use judgment as burden. We place it upon our people to weigh them down. Or we use it in a way to manipulate people into action. We hold back the love of God by separating judgment from love. We judge out of hate, out of anger, out of maybe even some kind of self-hatred, rather than judging out of love, judging out of the resurrection. And because of that, 
we too split just like Israel because we use judgment as a tool to beat people down, to cut them down, instead of bringing them back to the garden to be healed. Hosea continues his judgment towards Israel, and it's becoming a top 10 diss track. Hosea begins to call out the priests of his time, who have been leading the people astray, who have been using their titles to increase their own power influence, We who have chosen political power as a means to control the people. I'm partial to verses 6 through 8. My people are destroyed from a lack of knowledge, since you have rejected knowledge. So I will reject you from serving me as a priest. Since you have forgotten the instruction of God, so will I forget your children. The more they increase, the more they have sinned against me. They exchange their glory for shame. They feed on the sins of my people. They set their hearts on evil things. You have rejected knowledge. So I will reject you from serving me as a priest. Since you have forgotten the instructions of God, I will forget your children. These lines resonate with the message of Christ to the Pharisees, where Christ comes down not to do away with law, but rather bring it back towards his natural intention, where God intended law to be, versus how we had interpreted the law. If you would, to bring law back to the garden, to bring it back to, and to bring it away from those who have interpreted it wrong and led us stray into the desert. Christ tells the Pharisees that they have forgotten the intent of law and rather have felt like their interpretation of law is better followed. And because of that, they have forgotten who God is. You have no knowledge of me. Christ came to remind them of that. But as you can see, this isn't a tale as old as time. The Pharisees were not the first, nor would they be the last. God's law is universal. As the psalmist says, it is written on our hearts. When God's law is spoken, the imago Dei, the imprint of God, stirs in all of us. The breath of life that brought us out of the dust and into life awakes. And because of this, we can all be manipulated by those who use a bit of God's truth for us to connect to and then be manipulated based off of that. We as humans desire to be reconnected back to the garden. We desire to be in community, to be known. Hosea, Gomer, God, Israel, us, the church. We desire to be connected. And people throughout time have noticed this and have used this desire to manipulate us. Sometimes knowing, sometimes unknowing. Sometimes intentionally and sometimes unintentionally. They use the word of God to become a burden that only they can lift. They use the law of God to control rather than set free. They seek God's power for themselves. And for that, I must feel like I apologize. I apologize on behalf of the American church where this has happened. We have taken the laws of God and used them to burden those around us instead of allowing those people to be set free. I apologize for those who stood in the pulpit and used it as a way to consolidate their own power instead of giving that power to God. I apologize for those who manipulated the hearts of those listening by using the truths of God. I apologize for those, uh, I apologize for how there were other pastors and priests who stood by and allow people to do this. Those of us who did not speak up on your behalf or on behalf of those who are being manipulated and burdened. 
I apologize for those who have been hurt and left and were never offered the freedom that God had given them to give. Christ came to offer the freedom of God, sacrificing himself on our behalf, and it is our job as both pastors and lay leaders of the American church not to withhold that gift. Christ has been freely given, grace has been freely given by the, free, by the blood of Christ, so now may it be freely received. God does continue, seem to continue this pattern of where he's saying he's going to forget the children, the offspring of the wandering, of the those who have wandered to these other gods. We offer sacrifice on the mountaintops and burning hills to these other gods, hoping that it will satisfy something deep inside of us, that it will fulfill our needs. You know, there's a famous theological statement made by the band Plum in the early 90s talking about how there's a God-shaped hole in all of us. There's a whole song about it. I would sing, but I'm a terrible singer, and that in itself would be its own punishment. But that statement is actually based more on the founding works of St. Augustine. Much uh, just like I talked about, there's this innate desire in all of, uh, a desire for God in all of us, that law that is written upon our hearts. And we have this void that we try to fill. And we, as humanity, will take all of these other gods that we find and try to shove them into that hole, but they will never fulfill us. Because I believe, in a certain way, that hole is infinite because God is infinite, and we take the finite things of this world and try to put them in there. They will never satisfy. As we talked about last week, the woman at the well taking those things and trying to find satisfaction in them. They will not satisfy. And here, once again, through the prophet Hosea, God is telling the people of Israel, you have sacrificed on mountaintops and hillsides, trying to find a God that will satisfy you. When I've been here the whole time, I'm the one who gave you the ability and the wealth or whatever to make those sacrifices, and yet you offer them to others. And I couldn't help but hear the resonating in our own humanity of the current contemporary place that we live in as the American church and in the place that we live in in the United States, we, have, we burn offerings on the mountaintops of wealth or on the hillsides of political power. We burn offerings on the mountaintops of lust or the hillside of our own egos. We burn on offerings on the mountaintops of destroying our environment or the hillsides of our economy. But as all of these things these offerings to false gods. God constantly reminds Israel that they will never be satisfied, that the only the knowledge of God will. And remember, as we talked about in the very beginning, that it's not only knowing God, but it's living out God. Only will the grace and the blood of Christ will. Not knowing grace, but living grace. Only will these things truly stop our wandering. Only returning back to the garden will we ever feel at home. And like I said, sometimes the destruction we see around us is a reminder that we need to return to the garden. And then this is one of my favorite things that comes out of the book of Hosea. God calls Israel a stubborn cow. And I mean, I really feel seen when God says this. We as humanity, as the American church, we are a stubborn cow. But once again, even though, sh even though short in his respite, God tells us that even though we are a stubborn cow, he will still go into the pasture and seek us out, much like a shepherd will seek out its lamb. 
And once again, you see the words of Christ as they were intended for their audience. When Christ says that he will seek out the one lamb, it is because God has already said that before. The words that ring tr- these words ring true because they have been ringing throughout history, throughout our history as humanity. God tells Israel that in the midst of its wandering and its faltering, God will seek it out because it is still young and easily harmed. It is still worthy of being loved. God sends Christ to us to remind us that we are still being sought out after, that he will seek us despite our wandering and sacrificing on Devon mountaintops. The shepherd is willing still to lay down his life for the sake of that lamb. Even though we may be crooked deep down, the time has come for all paths to be made straight, for the mountains to be lowered and the valleys to be raised up that even the midst of Israel's prostitution and solicitation is still in its desire to be filled by other gods the God who created them still loves them has loved them and will continue to love them and even though the American church's own prostitution and solicitation seeking to be filled by other gods the God that created them still loves them always has loved them and will continue to love them And I think that even more importantly for us as individuals, even though we may have offered sacrifice on other mountains and solicited other gods, Christ still died for us and his grace still seeks us out as a shepherd goes after a lamb. I know that in this sermon and in this passage, the Lord has spoken so much of judgment and it may seem harsh. But like I said, This is not judgment for the sake of separation, but rather a judgment for the sake of reconciliation. A judgment that is an invitation for us to draw closer back to God and back to a garden. A judgment that seeks us out, but is rooted in love. It's a judgment that says, I am not done with you because I have not stopped loving you. And I think that this is important for us to hear because judgment becomes kind of a scary word in the church because of how falsely it's been used in the past. When judgment is coupled with love and reconciliation and the grace of Jesus Christ, judgment leads us back to the garden, towards a life everlasting, towards a kingdom of God instead of a kingdom of ourselves. Judgment was not meant to burden or to separate, but rather to make us whole and bring us home. And isn't that the story of Hosea calling out to his wife to come home? And God's story to the American church to come home, and God's story to you listening to come home. Be blessed this week. And please remember to wash your hands.